Hello and welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea. That's me. To all the feel-good, cliche, romantic, questionable, hilarious, occasionally humorous, films she's never wanted to watch. Chelsea, this is our final standard episode for this season. How are you feeling? I'm feeling like this is a very big moment for a variety of reasons. Obviously, it's the last standard episode in our season. The next time we're back, perhaps, with a... (laughs) regular episode it'll be season two and that just is feeling very big obviously this feels like our make or break episode our make or break situation for our friendship chelsea has officially met both harry and sally (laughs) i've made their acquaintance (laughs) and i am a little bit nervous going into this conversation so i'm gonna avoid it for a moment if you don't mind madison okay that's Uh, fine And instead, I have a question I'd love to talk to you about before maybe we're never speaking again. Um, And that is, is it a pickle seed or a cucumber seed? It's a cucumber seed. Great. And now my follow-up question to that, why is it that pickles are just pickles, but everything else that you pickle is like a pickled onion or a pickled egg? Do you think that The cucumbers were just the first thing anyone pickled, and so they just get to be called pickles in their pickled form? Or is it that pickles are the most popular thing that we pickle, and therefore we associate pickling with cucumbers above all other things you might pickle? And I realize that's the most times anyone's ever used any variation of pickle in a sentence, but there you have it. Gosh, I'm just gobsmacked. Wow, now I want to fall down an internet rabbit hole of like food preservation history. And if it's a matter of that was the very first thing that was pickled, I think I'm having an existential crisis. I know. Look, this was, I had a lunchtime conversation with someone uh, who listens to this podcast. Hello, hi. Perhaps you're young enough to remember that conversation. Maybe not. They told me several times in the same conversation that they were old. So who knows? Youth is fleeting. I don't know. I don't know that I've ever thought about it before, but I'm like, everything else is a pickled whatever, because pickling is a a process that you do, but we don't call them pickled cucumbers. We just call them pickles. It is taking on a whole other personality. It's like... Tyler Perry and Medea. They're practically two separate people. I'm actually an expert on pickling, and it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm looking at the PBS website on the history of pickling. And did you know that pickles have been around for thousands of years, dating back to 2030 BC, when cucumbers from their native India were pickled in the Tigris Valley? Tigris Valley? I don't know. Don't anyone correct me. I'm still recovering from when we were corrected for our French pronunciation. But yeah, apparently that's probably it, is that cucumbers were just the OG, which makes them pretty fucking cool. Great. Although kosher dill pickles have a unique history of their own. In the Book of Jewish Food, Claudia Rodin explains that pickled vegetables were a dietary staple for Jews living in the Ukraine, Poland, Lithuania, and Russia. You know, 
middle school me, seventh grade Chelsea is beaming because seventh grade Chelsea was obsessed with pickles. I started a whole war with a classmate about my love of pickles. And so honestly, this feels like decades, decade and some change. I'm not that old. In the making. Who knew that one day, like 12-year-old Chelsea is just like, one day you will have a podcast and you will talk about pickles. And she would be like, what is a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think they they really had taken off yet. No, I don't think they were hot on the scene. But I will say that I'm a very staunch believer. You know, we were talking before about the weird social insistence of pairs. Like everyone and everything has to come in a pair. And normally I would disagree and say that, you know, oneness, twoness, threeness, fourness, whatever you want to be is perfectly acceptable. But I think that there's a special kind of two-ness in the world, and that is the pickle friend. Because you have a friend like myself who doesn't eat pickles. I don't really like like the vinegary taste. I don't generally like pickled things. But, you know, when you go out to a nice deli or something like that and you get a sandwich and it comes with a pickle... You don't want to throw it away because that's food waste and it's like ingrained in you like you don't waste food, but you don't want to eat it and you feel bad. So you go with a pickle friend and you're my pickle friend. I'm like tearing up because we could break up by the end of this recording. So that's so sad. You just told me that I'm your pickle friend. And what if we never speak again? What if I never get to eat your pickles? That sounds so dirty, Chelsea. It does. So, so dirty. (laughs) Chelsea. We have to survive because I can't go to a New York deli without you now. It's so sad. And you know, Chelsea, I'm not the only one who is really skeptical about watching this with you. Other people have asked that we don't watch When Harry Met Sally. It's been almost the number one request. It's not, hey, we want you to watch this. It's, hey, please don't watch this. I don't know that we can delay the inevitable any longer. So would you please do what you do on this show? I will. Okay, so this week we watched When Harry Met Sally, which I think this is probably the third time that I watched it this year, because I dropped a really big bomb on Chelsea last time that not only is When Harry Met Sally my favorite rom-com, it's also just my favorite movie, which added a layer to this. But without further ado, this film was directed by Rob Reiner, whose directing career includes the Oscar-nominated films This Is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, and The Princess Bride, and Oscar-nominated films including this movie, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. So it features Billy Crystal as Harry and Meg Ryan as Sally. Harry and Sally first meet when driving from the University of Chicago to New York City, and over the 18-hour drive, the topic of friendship comes up, specifically Can women and men, specifically heterosexual women and men in this context, can women and men be friends or does sexual attraction ruin it all? After this faded meeting, they end up losing touch, don't see each other, don't speak again after this long drive for five years and they run into each other in an airport. Then they lose track of each other again and then they meet again in a bookstore 
And it's at the bookstore where Sally just broke up with her long-term boyfriend, Joe. And Harry is getting divorced from his wife, Helen, that they become friends. And the movie follows their friendship, which ultimately leads to the climax. That's a pun. Chelsea's rolling her eyes. It's great. Where when Sally is upset after learning the news that her ex, Joe, is getting married, Harry comes over to comfort her, and they, well, as we say on this show, have a dalliance. Then everything becomes weird, and the friendship is fractured, and they're like, maybe it's true. Maybe men and women can't be friends once sex gets in the way of it all, which it inevitably will. But then... In my favorite scene ever in a rom-com, Harry runs and finds Sally at a New Year's Eve party and angrily tells her all the things that he loves about her. And she says, I hate you, Harry. I really hate you. And then they kiss and they live happily ever after. That is indeed the movie that I watched. Good, good. I'm glad. Um, And Chelsea, I want to let you know a fun fact that if I'm ever watching this film with someone, even if I'm watching this film with someone who has seen this film before, watching it with someone who has seen this film before with me so they've already heard this, it's kind of like how you like to tell your cow fact anytime you see cows. I like to tell this fact. Cows have best friends. And it makes me want to cry every time you say it because it's so wholesome. But the couples that are featured in the little asides throughout the film, the older couples that are interviewed, those are actually real couples with real stories. So the stories that they're telling about their marriages are genuine. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if that's a bad okay. And Chelsea, I'm not going to sit here and say that this movie is unproblematic. I know it is, but... I don't think this is the worst movie that we've watched because we've watched other because not only this is Rob Reiner directed, but this is Nora Ephron written. And I know that you haven't necessarily enjoyed Nora Ephron's work in the past, but I feel like you probably could tolerate this movie a bit more than others, perhaps, because it was I think it was pretty funny. I don't think you hated it. Madison, I did not hate this movie. Mm -hmm. That being said, I have no intention of ever watching it again. (laughs) And honestly, I'm still processing the fact that these real, these couples interspliced are real couples because most of my notes about these couples were, is this woman here against her will? (laughs) Do they actually like each other? No. They don't seem like... Honestly, I'm okay. I'm I think I need more time to process this. I think overall this movie was fine. Mm-hmm. I'm also treading very lightly because I'm very aware this is your favorite <laughs> movie and that a lot of people really like this movie. So it was Oscar nominated. If I haven't been the most hated host up until this point, this episode might just grant me that crown. <laughs> Look, there were, I did, I did make note of the places in which I laughed. I, this is definitely a better movie than You've Got Mail, certainly a better movie than Never Been Kissed. And I think humor wise, I probably enjoyed it more than 
some of the more forgettable movies like Sweet Home Alabama, Rosalind. That all being said, I have some questions. I want to say right at the gates, right at the front, I love this movie because for some reason, I really love a funny asshole man. And that's what Billy Crystal plays. Harry is an asshole. He is, uh, how do I put it? He's just full of that unearned confidence in the beginning. And these are the type of men that I like to spar with. Like I like to usually verbally assault them in a back and forth and they enjoy it. So it's mutually beneficial. That's the type of guy that he is. And I personally love that. Would I want to date that type of guy? Would I want to admit? No, because he's an asshole, but he's fun to watch. I am going to wholeheartedly disagree with you. (laughs) You think he's because my Biggest note is that I think maybe this film had a better chance if Harry was not who he was. My overall distaste for this movie is because Harry is an asshole and he's that specific kind of asshole that like just thinks he's so fucking funny Mm -hmm. or like he knows he knows something that you don't and he's so goddamn smug about it. And I hate that guy. Yeah. I can't stand him. I don't find him funny. Mostly we can get into specifics, but I felt like the particular pairing that we had in front of us made Sally look like an uptight, anal retentive bitch. And I actually don't think she is. I really don't. And maybe that is a hot take, but (laughs) I don't think that she is. And I think that this film was allowing men, specifically Harry in this case, to be whatever he wanted to be because he's a man. And then we had to paint Sally as the bad guy. We had to paint Sally like the bitch in order for him to be likable. That seemed to be the dynamic that they were trying to create. And I did not appreciate it. I feel like a lot of times we, we, you know, we acknowledge like these movies came out This movie came out in 89. Obviously, many, many years have passed. (laughs) Um, But I think that aside, this is still something that I see. I've seen this guy in real life, in my life. I've seen this guy in, you know, people that my friends have dated. And I don't like this guy. And the fact that this guy is a real person, this is not somebody that has been dramatized for the screen. The fact that we're romanticizing this guy, I'm so angry about it. (laughs) So my biggest problem with when Harry met Sally is the fact that Sally had to meet Harry. (laughs) I think my takeaway is that by the end of it, I see what you're saying about how Sally is portrayed as like this uptight bitch. And she's probably not. She's just a woman who knows what she wants, pursues what she wants, and if she's not doing it in a way that's aggressive or harmful to others or anything like that, she just simply is. It's the whole conversation of, like, when they're laying in bed watching Casablanca and he says something about Ingrid Bergman being a low-maintenance woman, and he's like, oh, yeah, you're definitely high-maintenance. Which I, I hate. I hate that terminology because a person is not a machine. They are complex 
organic organisms <laughs> with personalities of varying types and degrees. And so the fact that people want to categorize people by saying you're low maintenance, which basically just you, you're low maintenance in relation to that specific person, because to somebody else, whatever weird eccentricities that you have could be high maintenance to someone and low maintenance to someone else. So it's total bullshit. I hate that. I was seething in <laughs> anger during that scene. I think that it just makes me think of one of my favorite things that my older sister has ever said. I can't remember who said it, but someone told her that she was high maintenance. It's probably one of her shitty exes or something. Someone told her that she was high maintenance because she she always has the long, you know, done nails. Her hair is always, you know, but she's a, she's a cosmetologist. Like, that's literally her job. The beautification of others. And would you go to someone who looks like, you know, a hot mess? Because you're like, if they look like that, I don't want to look like that. And one of my favorite things that she says, though, is, yeah, I'm high maintenance but I maintain myself. The high maintenance doesn't bother you because I'm the one doing the maintenance and I will continue being the one to do the maintenance, which I loved. I thought that was great. But I think that where I disagree is I don't even mind that Sally can be portrayed as like this high maintenance bitch because Harry is equally portrayed as this sardonic asshole. And at the end of it, neither of them are trying to alter that for the other. It's very much, I've decided that I love you in spite of this sort of situation. Because when he's telling her that he loves her at the end, he's like, you know, I love you. I love that it takes you, you know, 30 minutes to order a salad or whatever. Just going through all of that of, I love that you are so picky with your food and I love how your nose crinkle how your forehead crinkles when you look at me like I'm crazy and then she says I hate you I really hate you because in that moment she does because she's just so pissed off he's been such an asshole and he's saying the way that you carry yourself through life doesn't mesh with how I carry myself through life and yet despite all of it their lives are always going to be made better with each other in it together. That's what I love about this is. Look, the one thing I'll give you about this movie is that as much as I hate Harry and wish Sally had never met him, <laughs> and that'll be my joke for this episode, I believed the romance. And I think that's because this is one of those rare films in which enough time has elapsed. And also we're starting from a well, not starting, but from the moment that they become friends, like, right, like they've built this friendship. And so by the time you get to that New Year's party where they both kind of feel like, oh, I like this person as something different than a friend. I, as a viewer, understand, you know, that they've been there for each other. The one thing I will hand to this movie that some of the other films that we've watched were missing is that I can understand, I, I see the progression and it made a certain amount of sense to me. Now, personally, would have loved if they had just, well, really, I just would have loved if Harry wasn't there, but fine, would have loved for them to just be pals because I feel like what this film does is take a clear stance on the question it's asking, mm -hmm. which is, can men and women, as you said before, specifically heterosexual men and women, be friends. 
And I feel like the film is definitively saying, no, they cannot because they end up together in the end. And there's no other point of reference for this kind of dynamic. And I don't agree with that. But in terms of the romance, I will give it its due. (laughs) I'm a huge fan of flawed characters. I love a messy bitch when it comes to movies, when it comes to books. I love it. And I think part of the reason why I love this movie so much is every single character in it, absolutely messy bitch. Like you have Harry and Sally, obviously, but you also have Carrie Fisher's character. I got so excited in the opening credits, which are just, it's just a black screen with white text. Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal, When Harry Met Sally, Carrie Fisher. And I went, okay, (laughs) I'm excited. I like Carrie Fisher. Who doesn't like Carrie Fisher? Show me them and I will hurt them. But yeah, she's a she's a huge mess in this movie. Marie is like sleeping with married men. Or I think specifically one married woman. Yeah. And seems to want him to break up with his wife. And Sally's always like, he's not going to leave her. I know. You're right. You're right. I know you're right. I love that refrain that they do just over and over again. Just because it's cheeky. But I also love, I think Nora Ephron in particular has a special place in her heart for the asshole writer who thinks that he is hot shit. How many conversations with men have you had like this where they find themselves to be so special thinking about something as mundane as death? All the fucking time. Did I ever tell you about the worst blind date The only blind date I ever went on, but the worst date I ever went on. Is this the one where the guy gave you his business card at the end of it? Have I told this story on the podcast? No. If it's the one where the guy gave you his business card, you have not told this story. You've just told the story to me. Yes. Okay. I'm going to share this for the listeners because I feel like... Now, this is not the Harry that we see for the rest of the movie, in my opinion. He does grow up. I think that he still has the same level of volatility that we see after he runs into Helen and Ira and has the meltdown over the wagon wheel table. And we just see this throughout this streak of... I guess really what it is is just self-absorption more than anything else. But the scene where they're driving in the car and he's like, I think about death for hours, days sometimes. And I always, when I buy a new book, I always read the last page. That way if I die before I finish it, I know the ending. It just made me think so much of this one date that I went on in college. It was supposed to just be a coffee date. You know, coffee dates are safe. They last a lot less time if it doesn't go well. But it was MLK Day and the coffee shop we were going to go to was closed. So it got shifted to dinner. And I did get free nachos out of this. So you win some, you lose some. But the guy spent the entire time talking about his fascination with 1940s film and literature like that, um, you know, sort of noir detective style of the 40s and I was bored out of my skull it was just a setup from a friend but apparently he was really into film at one point he said that Kubrick was a hack 
And I'm like, all right, bestie, go off, I guess. Then towards the end, he was like, oh, let me show you my business card. And dear listener, you're not prepared for this when I say that on his business card, he was apparently like some kind of film major or something. And on his business card said screenplay writer, director, ginger, because he was a redhead. And then he let me keep the business card, which was so nice of him, I guess. Do you still have the business card? You know what, Chelsea? That's actually the saddest part of my life is that I don't. I was in like a pen pal situation with one of my high school friends at the time. We don't actually speak anymore. We had a big falling out, but now we're Instagram friends, so I think it's fine. But... I actually sent it to her in one of my letters, basically being like, look at this fucking shit. And now that we are clearly famous uh, and very professional podcasters, she's going to come out of the woodwork with this business card. Yes, please. She's going to sell it on eBay. Oh, God. She's going to sell all of our correspondence. It's going to be terrifying. I don't want to remember what I was writing back and forth at age. I was about to be 19. Ooh. Yeah. 19-year-old Chelsea. Yeah, I don't blame you. Mm -hmm. I don't want to read the things I would have written at 19. No. Dear listeners, that's essentially the vibe that we get from young 21-year-old Harry. I would like to say that I was disgusted (laughs) at his grape eating, spitting the seeds on the door. Like, pay attention to your surroundings. But also, when did seedless grapes become a produce staple in the United States? Because this is supposed to be 1977. But I don't remember a world without seedless grapes. I know that they existed after I was born. But I don't recall them. Yeah. Really, all I'm saying here is thank whatever deity you believe in for the scientists and farmers that decided to modify the grape so that you didn't have to spit out seeds. Could have just enjoy a little bulb of fruit. Yeah, I think I've had seeded grapes exactly once in my life, and I don't, there's a reason why it was only once. I Why, why not enjoy the luxury of seedless grapes? I've had them once, but it, they were a different kind of grape uh, that my friend got at the Korean grocery store. And she was like, here, have this. And it was very big. And she was like, don't eat the skin. After she had handed it to me and I was about to put it in my mouth hole because why would I? (laughs) But I like pierced it and then I like slurped it out of its little skin pouch, which is very sexy. Yes, I know. (laughs) It was delicious, but there was a seed and I did have to spit that out. It was an experience. I don't know what kind of grapes these were, but they were special. And I will remember that moment forever. So thank you, coworker that always brought snacks from the H Mart. That reminds me of the time. So my uncle Paul, his uh, dad's wife, Mel, she's wonderful. And she does a bunch of, she actually teaches people herbalism and how, you know, the medicinal properties of different herbs. And she has a big ass garden. And so when I visited her back in August, because she lives near where my sister goes to college, and when she, when I went, when we moved her into college, we went and visited Tom and Mel, and Mel was walking me around her garden, and I know my way around herbs pretty well, but there were a few that I just couldn't identify, and so I asked her, I said, will you walk me through your garden and tell me what's in it? You know, I find that very interesting. 
And she's like, oh, yeah. And so she's walking around and she snaps off. She just keeps snapping off like leaves out of her garden. It's like, here, taste this. Here, taste this. Here, taste this. And I'm like, okay. And I mean, like, if someone's telling me, here, put this in your mouth, I'm just going to do it. No, no. Okay, you're going to have to leave that in, but I'm going to acknowledge what that sounds like. So anyway, she comes to this one plant. And she snaps off a leaf and she hands it to me. She's like, here, try this. And so I chew it up and it tastes like a leaf. And I was like, oh, what is that? Because I didn't recognize it. She's like, oh, it's comfrey, which I recognize comfrey, but I recognize it as like something that you would chew up or like mash and stick on a wound because it's supposed to help staunch bleeding. It's a coagulant. And I didn't think that you were supposed to like eat it, though. And so I said that. I said, oh, I thought this was mostly used for external use. And she goes, yeah, you actually have to be really careful how much you ingest because it can be toxic at, you know, higher amounts. And I just look at her. I'm like, ma'am, I just ate this because you told me to. And her her husband, Tom, she goes, wow. He goes, wow, Mel, you really just told her to swallow that and told her that it's toxic. And she goes, oh, my God, it was one leaf. She's fine. Is that why you have trust issues? That's, oh, Chelsea, that's only one part of it. But yes, it's reinforced it. But I will say after we get the horrible grape scene where he spits the pit onto the window and then rolls it down and it continues to spit out the window which is just gross we do get two incredible moments back to back from sally where they are in the diner and they have this whole conversation about casablanca leading up to it and she's saying that ingrid bergman should have and chelsea have you ever seen casablanca i have not that was one of my notes so to sum it up as easily as possible Ingrid Bergman has this whirlwind romance with sexy bar owner Humphrey Bogart's character. But then at the end, she leaves and goes off and marries Czechoslovakian royalty. It's been a while since I've watched it, so I really can't remember all the details. But that back and forth where Harry's like, I, you know, why wouldn't you want to stay with Humphrey Bogart? And she's like, well, he literally just owns a bar in Casablanca. Like, that's not the life that she wanted to lead. And he's like, well, that's ridiculous. That's, you know, the love of your life, the best sex of your life. How do you just leave that? she's like yeah no it makes sense why she wouldn't go and he's like well you've just clearly never had good sex if that's what you think would be the instant response to that but she shouts I've had plenty of good sex and the whole diner goes silent and then they sit down and she's like Sheldon Gordon and he's like Shell you did not have great sex with a man named Shell Sheldon and we have the amazing joke of why she and Sheldon broke up and it's because of days of the week underwear. And it's because he was always wondering where Sunday was. And then she just so plainly, he's like, where was Sunday? And she's like, they don't make Sunday. And she goes very plainly, because of God. And I love that. God would be afraid to be that close to a coochie, is all I have to say. <laughs> 
of all the things I have heard or ever expected to hear come out of your mouth, Madison, that was not one of them. I have to keep you guessing, Chelsea. I I guess. I did think that was funny, the fact that a company would not make Sunday underpants because of God. But then we have the amazing pie scene where she says, I'd like the chef's salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. But then she goes on and says, but I'd like the pie heated and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. And the waitress says, not even the pie. And she goes, no, just the pie, but then not heated. Look, as someone who has foods that I only eat certain ways, this is where I just think she's asking for what she wants. And I also acknowledge that in the world we live in where we see on the interwebs Karen's run amok, I acknowledge that her giving a list of instructions to a poor server who is making less than minimum wage, I am sure, is a bit much. However, it's very clear to me that it's supposed to be like, oh, she's so difficult. And here's my problem. It's not that She's difficult for wanting this specific thing. I feel like this specific thing is shorthand for the fact that she is uptight. And in this sense, we want to be a go with the flow type of gal. And this is not specifically a dig at this movie. This is a overall observation I have made about many films. There are these tiny ways in which women are portrayed as difficult for things that aren't necessarily a big deal because they're written in opposition to a person that is that is their mm-hmm. opposite. So he is a lot more casual. Also, just in general, women are expected to be like very easy to be a difficult woman to bring it back to when we talked about failure to launch and I said how much I appreciated that Zoe Deschanel's character is this grumpy woman it's sort of the same thing we have a woman here Sally who is asking for exactly what she wants do you not understand how rare that is so many women are raised to be accommodating of other people. Socially, that is what a woman's role is supposed to be. She is supposed to accommodate those around her, most often men, but it can also be other women. That is how women are raised. And as a woman that was raised that way, not specifically by a specific person, but by a society that has said you have to be this way, you and I, Madison, we've, we're we're actually friends. We don't just make this podcast together. True, we didn't just meet on Craigslist. We have some other friends. We go out. None of us can make a decision because we're all trying to accommodate the other people. But then that creates another problem. But in this particular situation with Sally, she is asking for exactly what she wants. And that on a man, that would be revered. But because she is a woman, it's not. That's why this just rubbed me the wrong way because her asking for this, you could be sympathetic and be like, it's just a character quirk. But with everything else that's going on with her paired with this like very like unearned, confident guy, it just cements for me that she is going to be seen as difficult. I agree that this particular order is a lot, 
But continually we see her ask for these specific things. And I just don't think there's anything wrong with a woman asking for what she wants or what she needs. That's the tweet. (laughs) You went over your character limit if it's a tweet, but Elon Musk will fix that for you. He's gearing up to just remove that so people can start posting their shitty manifestos, I guess. But no, I completely agree. What I mean, what you're describing is you're describing the phenomenon of the cool girl who is someone who is never ruffled by anything, constantly overly accommodating, and is essentially a mirror for anyone with her to make sure that she personally doesn't bleed too much into her surroundings. And by all accounts, Sally is not a cool girl. She is a self-possessed woman who knows exactly what she wants, the way that she wants it, even if it can come across as comically overbearing throughout the movie, which is meant to be. I find it really endearing because that's the type of woman that I am. It was funny because my mom said something to my dad about how he needed to take a shower. She's like, oh, are you going to take a shower before my little sister got home? She's like, oh, are you going to take a shower before she gets home? And he was like, oh, yeah, I might. He just kept hemming and hawing. And I walked by him. I went, oh, my God, you stink. Can you please go shower? Seriously, you need to bathe. You are a stinky child. Go. And my mom was like, thank you for backing me up on that. And I was like, that's all you got to say. You just got to bully them until it works. And it's not out of anything negative. It's not real bullying where you're doing something with harm. You're just living in your world, making sure that all the pieces are arranged correctly. I think that's what Sally is. Sally is a woman living in her world, just making her way through. Because here's the thing. The world is hard enough without having to constantly accommodate for everyone else in it. And when Harry calls her high maintenance, what he is really saying is Sally is the type of woman who's not afraid to go out and get what she wants. And when she's played across Harry, who doesn't seem to know what he wants, I think a lot of his calling her high maintenance and everything is more so a projection of feeling insecure about the fact that he had it all together. He had the great job with the political consulting. And I mean, he still has that, but he was married and his wife left him for another man. So there's the biggest ego blow that he suffers in the movie. But Sally, for almost the entire movie, has her shit together way better than him, despite also recently terminating a long-term romantic entanglement. And you could say, well, he was married and she wasn't, but that doesn't mean anything. They were still in a relationship for about the same duration. He was with Helen longer because he was engaged by the point that Sally and Joe were dating a month at that point. But still, they're both suffering the same trauma. I would have really liked to have seen, I think in Sally, you see growth emotionally, specifically with the respect to the romantic relationship that she was in previously. But she's like, oh, I'm fine. But it's not that he's getting married. It's that she realizes he didn't love her the way she loved him. And that's what's hurtful. And at that point, that's when she breaks down. She's not really had a cry about this 
But the fact that she's now crying is growth because really she's just closed herself off before that. She's not like she kind of goes out on dates, but she's really not dated anyone during that time after she's broken up with Joe and her and uh, Harry has have become friends. Harry, on the other hand, has been sleeping with everything that walks, which, okay, fine. But the thing is, is I don't feel like you get until the end of the film where he realizes that he is in love with Sally and he does want to be with her. You don't see him make any sort of change or like have any sort of emotional growth, or at least it's not as obvious. Like the only thing you have him is like him getting pissed off about the wagon wheel coffee table, which sidebar, totally thought that was like the helm of a pirate ship. (laughs) And I was very into it. But then they were like, it's a wagon wheel. I was like, oh, okay. So like wild west, not like high seas, but all right. Fair enough. Uh... (laughs) But like, that's the only time like, and I get it, right? Like he's, he's seeing these, their two friends merge their lives and he's confronted with all these memories of like, and on for him, it seemed like he, part of the reason, like he mentions on the, on the, in the 1982 where the, they like get reunited on an airplane. He, the reason he's getting married is because he doesn't want to date anymore. That doesn't seem to be a process that he particularly enjoys. That seems almost like a clinical analysis. I think he's desiring to know where he stands with a person. Yes. And this like, do I stay? Do I get up and leave? That like guesswork and knowing that if you choose wrong, you're going to hurt this other person. Like that's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a burden for you to have. So I think that what he's desiring is to be fulfilled himself, but also be confident in the fact that he's not going to have to do that mental gymnastics Mm -hmm. ever again. And I can appreciate all of that. And I mean, I guess it makes sense for their character. Sally knew what she wanted. She asked for marriage and children because she realized that's what she wanted. And that's what broke up her relationship. But my point with Harry is I don't feel like we see him grow emotionally. I feel like there should have been smaller moments leading up to that big epiphany at the end is what I'm trying to say. I think with Sally, there are other times in which we see her have that. And I don't feel like we did with him. And I also feel like all of his choices were played off as I'm a man. Yeah. And I think that that's bullshit. Like, oh, I'm sleeping with everything that walks because I'm a man and I'm just fulfilling this need. But there's something else going on there. And I feel like they didn't even try. I would have liked to see a little bit more. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think I think the whole time Harry is a really passive character. And like you said, the big epiphany is him eventually deciding what he wants and taking action on it because the whole time his relationships are dictated by knowing where he stands with someone. And I would argue, though, that he does have growth with Sally within their friendship toward that because he's comfortable knowing that they've sort of mutually come to the decision of their friendship because his whole premise is that with heterosexual men and women by his premise undermined by the men 
they can't be friends because the sexual attraction ruins the friendship and it dooms it to fail. And I think within their friendship decided that he could be friends with her despite his sexual attraction to her because nothing but his decision could put him in the position to know where he stood with her. Even if there was this lingering attraction, he could be okay with the friendship because it's what he was pursuing. Then when they did have sex, that threw him for the tailspin because suddenly he had no longer remained in the position that he had decided of what kind of relationship that they have. And he reverts back to the really old habit of, I wanted to know where I stood with this person. Now it's gray and I don't want to hurt them. You see that in the scene where they're both getting ready to go out to dinner with one another and they're both having the same monologue of, I'll just say it's a mistake. And she thinks, I hope I can say it first. That way she maintains her ground. And he says, I hope that she says it first. So he doesn't have to run the risk of hurting her, which of course he does. They have the falling out and everything, which then leads him to then have the epiphany of, and he tries to get her back in some way, whether that's friendship or romantic, when he's calling her and leaving her messages and she's just not entertaining them, which I don't think she should have entertained them. I support her decision in blowing him off because forgiveness is something that's earned rather than freely given if done properly in my opinion, because when you say I'm sorry, it means if this comes up in the future, I won't ever do the same thing again. If I had the opportunity to replay this, I would do this differently. And I think that he gets to that point and proves that at the party and in that moment, it felt like too little, too late for her, but she was still so in love with him that, you know, they kiss and they make up. Ultimately, I, I really like your point that he has to know where he stands with people. And when he doesn't, he can't handle it. And that's why he doesn't ever get into any serious relationship. Because if he never has to worry about someone's feelings too much, then if he hurts them or if they hurt him, it doesn't matter. It won't get to that point. But I do have to ask you, Chelsea, was the monologue at the end not excellent? So here's the thing. I've never seen this movie. However, I know this monologue because I've heard Madison perform it on more than one occasion. And I'll perform it here tonight. <laughs> oh, uh, do you want me to go ahead? Oh, yeah, I was. I thought you were you said you were going to. Oh, OK. <clears throat> I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend the day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely. And it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. I can admit that there are parts of that I find quite endearing. Mm -hmm. I think that the listing of her flaws is supposed to be comical, but there's an antagonistic part of me that wants to be like, maybe you should say something nice. <laughs> However, I realize I'm a huge hypocrite if I say that because there is a very similar style, let me list your flaws and tell you I love you in boyfriend material. And I find that wholly endearing. So I guess I just have to say that 
Yes, it's a nice monologue. And leave it at that. If I ever propose to somebody, this is how I'm going to do it. There's a couple of things that I, since we're talking about Harry and his assertion that men and women cannot be friends. In the part two, where they're like walking on the, what is it called when it's the automatic walkway? It's not an escalator because you're not escalating. I like to call it the twilight walk. Because that's how they made the vampires move fast in Twilight, is they put them on one of those and told them to run. Incredible. Okay, well, on the Twilight Walk then, he <laughs> makes an amendment to the previous rule that men and women can't be friends, and which he says that men and women in relationships can be friends. But then he basically goes on to disprove this amendment, like it's not going to work. But one of the things that he says is something that really irked me. And it, it wasn't so much him saying this as if it was coming from him, but more like a, in a situation, this is what would happen, is that your partner is going to ask why you're friends with this person. Am I not enough for you? And I have a real problem with this because basically that attitude is implying that the only reason that you would, would have any kind of relationship with a person of a different gender than you is if you're trying to get into their pants. Yeah. And that's just not true. And also, even if it was, the other piece of this puzzle is the implication that your romantic partner has to fulfill every single need that you as a human being have, and that is patently untrue because no one person can fulfill every single need that a person has. That's why mm -hmm. you have friendships. That's why you have relationships with mentors. That's why you have relationships with your family. That's why you have relationships with coworkers. All of these relationships serve different purposes. And that is why you need all of them. Community is created in a variety of different ways and serves so many different purposes. And I really think that this idea that one person is supposed to complete you is toxic. Mm -hmm. And I think it allows people to stay in toxic relationships because this person is supposed to complete you. And so if they tell you, you they don't want you to have relationships outside, then that's because they should be all that you need. And if the world is telling you that and your partner's telling you that, then how are you ever supposed to know that that's just not true? Yeah, I completely agree. It's the difference between interdependence and codependence. Interdependence, you're working together, creating a healthy relationship where you help each other, where you help fulfill one another's needs, whatever that need may be, but you aren't reliant on them to provide that to you solely if you need to leave them, if they depart for some reason. That area of your life is not going to crumble down around you. I actually will say that I refuse to date men that don't have women friends because that one says to me that they really do only perceive women as uh, romantic partners, typically, or as being categorized to fulfill certain roles in life, which is asinine. Gender should play no role in being able to fulfill different areas in your life. And here's the thing. I think that people should be able to talk to each other as people rather than speaking to 
men, women, because one, not everyone fits in that dichotomy. So that's a ridiculous notion to begin with because gender is fluid and a spectrum. But you have to be socialized among all different types of people to know how to talk to people as if they are simply people. And so if you have, typically I see this more in men than in women, although you do see it in women as well. And again, anywhere within the spectrum as well. It's not a binary situation. But you see mostly in men that they categorize people in how they can fulfill their needs in a very compartmentalized way. And if you aren't friends with people all across the spectrum, you have not socialized yourself enough. I don't trust people who don't have friends, Chelsea. And not people who, like, don't have friends because it's difficult to make friends and maybe, like, they're in a new area, that sort of thing. No, if you cannot walk into a room full of people and find at least one person to talk to, I don't know. I don't trust you. Nope. Red flag. So, because, I mean, also, that's what really perpetuates a lot of patriarchal values of this dissecting of society along gendered lines. And it it harms everyone in between. I agree. The birth of locker room talk. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. On a completely other note, Sally says that she likes him clean-shaven. And honestly, I think he looks better with a beard. Thank you. Yes, that is the correct option. Billy Crystal is one of those people who just needs to be scruffed up. And I think it's actually a thing of people from New Jersey. Everyone I've ever met, every man I've ever met who's from New Jersey looks better with facial hair. So you heard it here first. This podcast is sponsored by the state of New Jersey in collaboration with the Corporation for Facial Hair Awareness. And this is a really important sponsorship because... The state of New Jersey gave birth to yours truly. It's true. It's true. So we were actually really honored that they reached out. Um, It was kind of weird, though, Chelsea, because they demanded a copy of your birth certificate. I just had your mom send it to them. Is that okay? (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they didn't want mine. They also asked for your social security number. So great, 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 great. I have literally nothing to offer people. I am broke and I have no assets of any kind. You still have all your organs. (laughs) Okay. That seemed so menacing. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to get knocked out and wake up without a kidney. (laughs) I know. I know. Oh, God. Okay. Also, the scene where he's wearing this white cable knit sweater. And my thought was... Men should wear more sweaters. I don't know when they stopped. I feel like it was a thing in the late 80s into the mid 90s. I feel like you saw a lot of men wearing sweaters in films. And I don't know if it was surfer, dude, bro, frat guy, toxic masculinity that was creeping up that would become very prevalent in the early aughts. You know, puka shell necklace that said very much like, Warmth is for women. Throw on your swimming trunks and puka shells and jump in the icy river for alpha, gamma, delta, phi, or whatever the heck 
Yeah. Men should just wear more sweaters. I thought he looked very nice in that sweater. I completely agree. He did. He looked really fucking good. And the thing about that, Chelsea, is a one I cannot stand to see a man in like the dead of winter when it's really fucking cold wearing shorts. They insist on it. And I hate that. And I don't support it at all. But I will tell you that there is one man that is single-handedly trying to bring back the sweater. And that is Mr. Chris Evans. He wears a white cable knit sweater in Knives Out that looks very nice. Yeah, I killed Fran, but I guess I didn't. So what do you have on me? Nothing. What? Attempted murder? I get arson for the building and a few other charges with a good lawyer, which I have. I'll be out in no time. It's like he finished Captain America and was just like, I'm going to be an asshole now. And I was like, dude, do it. It's like, uh, what's his face? Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. He's made all the money he ever needs to make. And now he plays these fucking weird characters. He was in, which I think that is a rom-com. Did you see The Lost City? I haven't. I've heard of it, though. Okay. Maybe we can watch it sometime. Wait, this podcast is sponsored by Sandra Bullock. That's true. So honestly, why haven't we watched a Sandy B flick? You know what? That is a tragedy. We'll fix that in season two. Honestly, we might lose that sponsorship. But no, uh, he plays like the villain in that. And it's hysterical and wonderful. And so anyway, my point is, I don't know what my point was. My point was I loved Chris Evans in Knives Out and I love Daniel Radcliffe and some of his weirdly weird choices lately, but they're working. He's living his life. He's doing what he wants and we love it. I agree completely. And I do have to ask with a complete non sequitur, what did you think about the diner scene? With the fake orgasm? Mm -hmm. That was one of the things I laughed hysterically at. Also, I thought it was a nice touch that... You have the first scene in 1977 where she very loudly proclaims that she's had great sex in her life and everyone is silent and turns to her and she's very Mm -hmm. visibly embarrassed. And then here she is in a diner in New York and he's just told her that a woman has never faked it with him. And she's just like, that's a load of crap. How would you possibly know? And to prove her point, doesn't hold back and performs beautifully a fake orgasm for him. And then the woman across turns to the waitress and says, I'll have whatever she's having. Yeah, I'll have what she's having. And Chelsea, do you know the fun trivia fact about the woman who says, I'll have what she's having? Of course I don't, Madison. (laughs) I'm glad you don't because I get to tell it to you. So you know that this film is directed by Rob Reiner. That's his mother. That is very funny. Right? She just happened to be on set visiting that day when they were going to be doing that scene and everyone was so nervous and he was like, you know what? This is going to be really fucking funny. And his mom is the one who has the infamous line. And I love that scene. I think that's fucking great because it also drives home a universal truth that every man thinks that they have made a woman come and every woman knows there have been many times where they have not and this is a psa to all women stop faking it their egos don't deserve it and if you're bored of it and if you're over it just pull a slick one two of roll off the bed i'm gonna go pee pull on some shorts they say wow you sure pulled up those shorts really fast and you respond yeah you should too That's a hypothetical. The other thing that made me laugh really hard was when he's telling 
Jess that he's getting a divorce and they're doing the wave. There's some sort of sporting event. I thought that was very funny. Oh, yeah. No, they're watching baseball and he's telling this horrible story. For anyone who ha- didn't watch it, um, one, shame on you. This is the one that you should watch ahead of time. But during this scene, they're sitting, I think, at a Mets game. And Harry is telling Jess about how he's getting a divorce from Helen and he's giving him the details of how Helen approached him and was like, I don't think I want to be married anymore. Not like she had a problem with the institute, like she had a problem with the institution, not with him and their marriage, but just marriage in general. And then he comes to find out through the course of the conversation that she claims that she's subletting an apartment from one of her co-workers, which is untrue. She's moving in with the man that she's been having an affair with. And they're going through all of this and movers arrive during the conversation and it's three big guys and one of them is wearing a shirt that says don't fuck with mr zero and harry asks helen when did you hire these men then he asked the men you know when did she hire you and it turns out that she had been planning this for a week and just now decided to tell him and he's recounting this horrible story about how you know these movers knew that he was getting a divorce before he did and she just kind of sprung all of this on him which I do actually have a hard time believing I would argue that if your marriage is to the point of divorce you have to see that something's coming you have to know that the relationship is dissolving in some way but I've never been divorced maybe I'm wrong So he's recounting this horribly sad story to his friend about how his marriage is falling apart. And all the while they're at a baseball game where periodically the entire crowd is doing the wave. So they just do the wave with the crowd while going through all of this. And it is a beautiful piece of physical comedy in this film that was truly excellent because it was really understated too. It wasn't a punchline. It just was. So 10 out of 10 for that. Okay. Can I propose? To me? Some. No. Good. I didn't want to reject you on air. That would be highly inappropriate. (laughs) Chelsea, this is strictly business. Like, I understand the tax benefits, but. (laughs) But I don't think that we could stand each other that long. Yeah, you've, you've said on air that I'm the only person that you could ever live with. I mean, that's true, but only if we keep our taxes separate. If we joint file, I don't think I could continue. Okay. Well, I'm not proposing, so it's not a conflict. Perfect. Okay, please continue. Can I propose some tweaks to this film that you love so much? I'll allow up to four. Okay, great. I don't really have a bunch. It's really just more of a general idea. I think that this film has potential for me to like it. If they were to remake this film now and... Really, my biggest complaint is the very binary look at gender and the separation between two of them. So if we update it, bring it into the 21st century, I think that perhaps I could like this. And on that note, if anyone recalls, I read a review in the Los Angeles Times when we watched Straight Up that called this a new take on When Harry Met Sally. And although you told me to forget that because I love Straight Up and you were like, please don't come into this thinking it's going to be your new favorite film. It was in the back of my mind just because I wanted to understand where that association came from. And I do see it. I do see there is a lot of 
talking between Harry and Sally the same way there was a lot of talking between Todd and Rory. And so it's not the same, but I do see the similarity. So I think that there is potential to update this movie, make it more modern, get rid of some of the things that irk me. And I think I could like it. Okay. More than just a, it's fine. So that's, that's really, that's the only thing I have for you. I didn't really think about fixes too hard, mostly because I thought Madison would just reject them all. <laughs> that is my proposition for you. I know that rem- remakes are overdone, but I think that this is one where, or like, it doesn't have to be a straight remake. I think there is potential here for a story that I would enjoy. I think that this has good bones. Yeah, I mean, really, if you wanted to bring it into the now, you could potentially just pose the question, can two people who are sexually, obviously sexually attracted to one another maintain a platonic friendship, even if neither of them are otherwise entangled? And if at the end of the film, those two people do wind up together, What I would like is that there are supporting characters in similar situations that would not. Right. Because that is one of the things I didn't like about the film is I feel like it answers that question in a way that I don't think is necessarily true. What if you had two people that did fuck and then went, no, and then just carried on? Yeah. And I was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about uh, Harry's hypothesis. I recently said to someone, you know, it would be nice if there was some sort of template for letting a friend know that you like them romantically, let's say, if you have developed feelings for a person and you want to let them know because it could be mutual and then that's something that you could then choose to explore. But I think we should normalize expressing those feelings and not just expressing them, but then also dealing with them. So in the event that the other person doesn't feel the same way, having a kind of like, I don't know, I'm going to ask you, Madison, if I did propose to you on this podcast, (laughs) would you never speak to me again because the answer is no? Or would you try to see if we could work on it? Well, I think that that question gets to the heart of when you are completely vulnerable with somebody who knows you inside out and they hand you rejection in the face of your vulnerability, can you deal with that? Because I think what you're asking is you're asking, can you deal with the potential discomfort and shame of rejection with someone that you trust that deeply and know that well because you're not going to I mean obviously yes people who know nothing about one another pursue each other romantically all the time I mean dating apps literally you know have been the hot trend for 10 years now and before that walking up to strangers in a bar and being like hey I like your eyebrows they remind me of Colin Farrell whatever you know But I think the difference is that it's a lot easier to pursue something with someone who doesn't already know everything about you. Because Harry brings that up after he and Sally have sex and they are laying there and he's like, usually you share stories back and forth because you're still learning about one another. And we know all of each other's stories and how that element of it was daunting. I think that you have to have someone who's really emotionally mature enough to recognize the value that they have in the friendship, to maintain it, 
regardless of what answer is given. And I think that people just aren't usually strong enough to accept and deal with that kind of rejection. But is it people not being strong enough or is it because we have such a rigid line between what is friendship and what is romance? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but most people I've talked to that are like have been with their partners for a long time, they say that their partner is their best friend. Yeah. And whether or not they started out as friends, like they had been friends for a while or not, but there are people in situations like that. You once told me that a romantic relationship was friendship on steroids. Yeah. So I feel like our perception of these two things is like we keep them in two separate boxes because that's easier. But I don't think that they are in two separate boxes. You know, they're in one of those pill caddies and they share a wall. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that they are more intertwined than we'd like to think that they are. And I think I would like to see a story in which people are confronting that because I think it would be nice for people to be able to have some kind of reference for what it looks like to be vulnerable, but also know that like it can be okay. That person that rejected you insofar as they don't want to pursue a romantic relationship with you, but they still love and care about you platonically. And you might need space to work through that rejection and the fact that what you might have imagined won't move forward, you're not going to pursue that. But I feel like there's all these storylines where confessing this is going to end the friendship and then the story ends up with they get together anyway. And I would like to see a story where somebody does confess that or they try it out and it doesn't work and they're still able to be friends later because... I think that that's actually a thing that happens. We just don't talk about it because maybe it's not as sexy or as as, as romantic, but like, why do all the stories have to be sexy and romantic? I know I've said this before on this podcast. I would love some more uh, varied stories about platonic friendships or other types of relationships. And I mean, as someone who has been in the face of having an amazing relationship and then having to end that relationship through no real issue no real fault of either party and then deciding this is a relationship that shouldn't end it just needs to transform I think that's what people can't get to is that moment of transformation because they're so swelled up in their own hurt that they're not open to that idea and it definitely is a huge part of the social fact of people get uncomfortable when you imagine it as a progression you start as you know in this instance you would start as nothing and then friends and then lovers and they and it feels like a linear track and so if you go back to just friends it's perceived as a regression. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's an evolution. But I think that you're completely right. Society would view that as a regression and it would feel unnatural in that lens. But I I would love to see that more. I'm friends with a couple different... Now, I am also a huge fan of burning every bridge that you've ever built when it no longer serves you. Because I have an anxious attachment style. So if you just really fuck with me, you're done. Because you're not going to cause me any more anxiety. You're cut off. Like that scene in Pitch Perfect. (laughs) But but I will say that I feel like just as people get older, they realize that there's value in maintaining something that valuable. 
because you realize just how much work goes into it. And typically when we watch rom-coms, it's younger people engaging in romantic entanglements. Not me, because I am a very innocent, pure as fresh driven snow, you know? But I have friends who are still friends with people that they've had dalliances with. This thought occurred to me while you were talking. Is it a specifically a heterosexual thing? Because I know that this is a little bit more complicated, but like a lot of queer women, they're all friends with each other and they've all dated each other. Like that's the joke. Yeah. I know part of that is, you know, wherever you are, it's a small community. Like the dating pool's not as large. Right. But I also think that partially because... I think people view within the gender binary they view and, and heterosexuality, they view people with different parts as like, oh, we don't be, we're not friends with those people because those are the people you mate with. Well, Chelsea, once they put their <laughs> rocket in your socket, <laughs> there's no going back. You can't unplug that. But like for non-heterosexual folks, it's like the dating pool and also the people you're friends with aren't necessarily that different. And so I don't know, I don't know that I'm articulating myself to the best of my ability, but I think what I'm getting at is I, I wonder if in part this is a heterosexual mindset but I do think to some extent it is a mindset that people have in general. And like, look, if, if somebody like fucked you over in a relationship, I'm not suggesting that you remain friends with them. No, fuck them. But there are plenty of relationships that end for whatever reason it ended. You're no longer together. But that doesn't mean that there are a lot of hurt feelings. There might be, but there might not be. Yeah. I feel like we just have very rigid ideas of these things. And I, I'm here to say... Maybe it's more complicated because humanity is not simple. No, just like all the food in Whole Foods, we are organic beings <laughs> that are complex and just trying to live out each day in our meat sacks. That was the most beautiful thing you've ever said. Thank you so much. I aspire to be poetic at every turn. Well, Madison, is When Harry Met Sally... A rom-com. Yes. Okay, great. Would you like to explain? <laughs> yes, I would love to explain. Please defend your position. Thank you. Thank you. God, I feel like I'm back in front of my thesis defense team. One of the most harrowing days of my life. I got a beer right afterwards at 11 o'clock. It was great. Anyway, so Chelsea, if you don't know, we, both you and I, have three different primary criteria for determining if something is, in fact... A rom-com. And the first part of it is, are there primary points of courtship? Are there central plot points conveying courtship? Do they date? Correct. And I think obviously they date. They're going out all the time. Now, are they necessarily romantically dating? For most of the movie, no, they are not. But they are deepening their relationship through dinner dates and just hanging out and being friends and enjoying each other's company. And if that's not a date, I don't know what is. I will concur. Second, did we laugh? I fucking laughed. Meg Ryan faked an orgasm in the middle of a New York deli. Indeed. So that's check number two. Perfect. Now the third is love in the driver's seat. If you remove the romance from this plot... Is the movie still 
whole can the movie stand on its own apart from the romance is the romance what's driving the plot forward exactly i would say yes but it's a deepening of a relationship that has a romantic conclusion that feels inevitable with the structure of the plot so while the plot is largely platonic in its initial shaping of the relationship with how it goes on it feels inevitably romantic i will briefly argue that while the evolution of their relationship to one another is the driving force of this story, I question whether or not we can confidently say that romance is driving the plot forward. Because, and while I recognize that at some point romance enters this plot, for a large, at least half of this film, romance isn't there at all. I would it is argue- just these two people. Okay, great. <laughs> I would argue that romance is persistently thwarted in this movie because Meg Ryan has feelings for him and doesn't want to prove him right. And Billy Crystal has feelings for her, but doesn't want to lose a good thing that he's got. And he doesn't have faith in romance anymore following his failed marriage. So you're saying that the decisions that these characters are making are driven by their romantic attraction to one another and their desire to pursue a romantic relationship with the other person. That is your position. My position is that they are motivated by a fear of an escalation of romance and how it could change their established platonic dynamic and a lot of their motivations are based around them attempting to avoid romance that is clearly bubbling up to the surface all right i will concede hell yeah as she takes a sip of her bevergino today's bevergino is really fucking stout and i drank a good quarter of it with my dinner because I was having soup. I wanted a nice cold beverage with my soup. And when we started this, Chelsea, I was like, holy shit. I really hope that that shit does not kick in. Otherwise, I am going to be hammered during this taping. Madison, mm-hmm. was it good soup? <laughs> it was excellent soup. My mom made it. So glad to hear it. I love soup. One of my favorite foods. Fucking love a soup. Uh, you know, soup is one of those things that so during the fall and winter, I'm a soup girl. Any point during the fall and winter, you can count that my blood is made up of 30% soup. What's your favorite? I love a like a tomato bisque. I had a really good tomato and basil like creamy soup with cheese tortellini in it the other day. Homemade. That sounds good. I just, I don't know. The tomato, tomato soups are... There's just something special about them. They always feel homey. I don't think I've ever had like a bad tomato soup. I've had ones that are better than others. You know what I mean? I've never like had a spoonful and went, "Mm, this is poison. So what you're saying is like the classic phrase, which is not true. Tomato soup is like sex. Even when it's bad, it's good. What? Have you never heard that before? No. 
Oh my god, no, there's like a classic saying of it's usually applied to pizza. It's like pizza is like sex. Even when it's bad, it's still kind of good because at least you have pizza. That's absolutely untrue. I am a huge pizza snob. I am too. Mm-mm. There is terrible pizza out there. Oh, God. Yeah. When I moved to Atlanta, I got the full range of really good fucking pizza. And I had the full range of like really good deliverable pizza that it just tastes. So like, I mean, I'm talking like you get a pizza... With fucking, you know, not you because you're vegetarian, but fucking prosciutto and sun-dried tomatoes and spinach, just all the good shit on a pizza. I had, I'm sorry to say this out loud, I had a slice of Papa John's pizza the other day. And it was because I was I was having dinner with people. It was what had been ordered. You know, I didn't have a say in the ordering. But dear fucking God, that was foul. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the people I ate it with. I, it was, oh, it was not pizza. It was horrible. But Chelsea, this movie's a fucking rom-com. Great. <laughs> what is the watchability score for this movie? 5.3. Did you say 5.3? Yeah. That's not allowed. So Chelsea, what is the watchability score? Well, for those just tuning in on our very last episode <laughs> before season two... The watchability score is the score we give on a scale of one to five on how watchable we found a movie. It is modeled after Zillow's walkability scores that judges spaces based on how conveniently you can get to things. So number one, stranded in a desert. You're not going anywhere. You're probably going to die. Number two, backroads barbecue. You got good food, but nothing else much around. You might die. Number three. <laughs> Number three, strip mall in suburbia. You've got a couple of things, but if you're living in suburbia, you probably wish that you would die. <laughs> Accurate. And number four, you're four blocks from a transit stop. So you, while you might not be where the action is, you can get there pretty conveniently and cheaply. Maybe you'll die. I mean... One time, my dad was coming back from a concert. Now, keep in mind, this was probably in, like, the early 90s, maybe? I don't know. I could call him and ask, but I won't. Uh, he was uh, leaving a concert in Atlanta really late. I was leaving the bars. It was, like, 3 in the morning. He's on Marta going back to where he was meant to be going. And he did see a guy's ear get ripped off. Terrifying. Number five. Best coffee shop in town is right downstairs, and you're so happy that you could die. <laughs> and they don't charge extra for, for oat milk because they understand that our lactose intolerant babies shouldn't be punished for their inability to process milk. Exactly. They don't want your intestines to die. Exactly. Just bringing it back to death, you know, because Harry thinks about it so often. He spends so. days thinking about it. He's like, you know what? thinking about shitting myself to death right now based on dairy consumption. So Madison, what will you give this film? I'm reminding you that it is a watchability score. 
I don't think that's going to change it, but I'm just reiterating that. This is not a judgment on the merits of the film. It is how watchable the movie is. I would argue this movie is actually really walkable, though. I think the scenery within it is really nice. You get some beautiful autumn in New York images. The scene where they're walking through the park was really pretty. It was beautifully cinematic. And whether or not you want to go with the Billie Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald route, either way, the autumn in New York scene beautiful i think that the pace of the dialogue is quippy but it's not so fast that slower people might get confused i think it's an easy watch i think it's a cute watch i'm sticking with my 5.3 no (laughs) it can have a five i'll have a five it can have a five madison but it's not allowed to have higher i understand that's against the rules I am going to, okay, coming into this conversation, I was giving this a straight three. Oh. Coming out of this conversation, I will give it a 3.5. Oh my God, what luxury. That is my New Year's gift to you. I love it. You're at the strip mall and you have a working coupon. I love that. I'm so blessed. Well, Chelsea, do you think that this will keep going? Well, Madison, I think that we survived. No, I think we survived. <laughs> that was so stupid. That was terrible. <laughs> Madison, actually, I would like to propose. Will you continue to be my co-host for another season? I am so honored. Absolutely. You have made me the happiest co-host alive. <laughs> I just can't imagine going a single week without laughs from you. Get it? Laughs. Funny you should mention going a single week without laughs and me, but also you. Uh, We will be taking a short break in the month of January. It will be shorter for you than it is for us, which is good because we would like to sleep. We have a couple of bonus episodes coming up. One of which will be a retrospective for which we just got hundreds of emails, I am sure. (laughs) I mean, Chelsea, I had to take the app off of my phone. It was blowing up. But the other episode, should we give them a little sneak preview so that they can also watch the movie? I think we should. And I think this will go well for anyone who we've bullied into listening that doesn't actually really like rom-coms. This is your moment to shine. We will be watching the 1998 film Blade. Featuring Wesley Snipes and Chris Christopherson. For a segment, a bonus segment, we are calling Rom-Com Respawn, in which we take a movie that is absolutely not a rom-com, but try to breathe new life into it and make it one. Should be fucking interesting. It should be great. I have never seen this movie. Do you know anything about it, Chelsea? I know absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> Just for funsies, I'm going to give you a little a little taste of it, okay? This film features Wesley Snipe playing a half-human, half-vampire called the Daywalker who goes around slaying vampires. Because I know that you like a good vampire slaying, even if our favorite three named Sarah isn't featured. Yeah, I like vampires. I like slaying. Slay! Queen, to just throw back to last time. (laughs) Exactly. And Christmas Carol's white women signs. Ah, 
I love Christmas Carol. I miss her already. So you have those to look forward to in the month of January. We hope everyone has a wonderful new year and that you have survived the holidays in one piece. If you have enjoyed season one, you're looking forward to those bonus episodes and more importantly, looking forward to the fact that we are not breaking up, (laughs) then please rate and review our podcast wherever you listen. And you can follow us online on Instagram at love at first screening, where every Thursday or Friday or one time it was a Saturday, (laughs) you can vote in our important poll where we ask such polarizing questions as which direction do you cut your sandwich diagonally or straight down the middle and thankfully the majority of people cut their sandwiches as god intended and not like a criminal but not all i have people in my corner damn it person in my corner i have one you had one there was one other person that voted with you and you know what i love them we're homies. I think you both are sick, <laughs> twisted fools. But Chelsea, I mean, either way, we are preserving democracy by promoting voting every week. It's true. And of course, if you have a romantic comedy that you would love for us to watch, you can write in love it for screening at gmail.com. Send us an email. Tell us what you'd like us to have our eyeballs watch next, but know that we could tear it to shreds. And probably will. You can also slide into our DMs like the sexy mofos you are and hit us up on Instagram at loveitfirstscreening. And I think we're deleting Twitter. We are deleting Twitter. So we're not even advertising it anymore. We are Love at First Screening. We are here every Wednesday, except for in the month of January, when we will be taking some time off. We will see you in February, February 1st, first Wednesday in February with season two. And we'll give you more details on the film we'll be watching in one of the bonus episodes. Once again, we are love at first screening, watching all of the rom-coms you love, love to hate, and everything in between. Until next time, 